This episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you by Lloyds Bank. With their Club Lloyds current account, you can now get 12 months of Disney Plus as your lifestyle benefit. To know me is to know that I love watching things on TV, so I am so excited to tell you about this. You might think that Disney Plus is just for Disney films. And yes, it's great for all of them. We must have watched Disney's Frozen at least 100 times by now. But it's so much more than that. With Disney Plus, there is endless entertainment with exclusive originals, brand new series, blockbuster movies. And it's just one of the great benefits that you can now get with a Club Lloyds account. I highly recommend watching The Bear if you haven't seen it yet. It's all about a talented chef who's presented with the challenge of overhauling his family sandwich shop. Season two is coming soon and I can't wait. Lloyds Bank are taking care of not only your banking needs, but entertainment too. Visit lloydsbank.com forward slash Club Lloyds to find out more. £3 monthly fee is charged to maintain the Club Lloyds account, but waived each month that you pay in £2,000 or more. UK residents, 18 and over, Disney Plus subscription required. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you very much to Lloyds Bank. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. Can you even believe we're in August? The rain is coming down almost like a monsoon as I write this. And I don't know about you, but I am holding out for a very hot September. (laughs) I love sitting down with today's guest and hearing his thoughts on the food that means the most to him. Particularly interesting, of course, because his job is that of a food critic. So when it's your job to critique food, how do you then tally that with what you know food means to you and the food that you love the most and what you eat the most often? Also really interesting discussing food and culture and how tied up that is with our identity. Also really, really loved the story behind the best dish he's ever eaten very funny definitely really relatable anyway it was all really interesting and I loved meeting Jimmy and I hope you'll enjoy it too thank you to Lloyds Bank for helping us to bring this to you each week whether you're walking to work cooking in the kitchen on a dog walk I love getting the messages that you send me by the way about where you listen to the podcast everyone seems to have their own ritual and honestly I love it so much that Desert Island Dishes is a part of your weekly routine Thank you. My guest today is Jimmy Famurewa. Jimmy is a writer, broadcaster, and food critic. He is the chief restaurant critic for The Evening Standard, a regular guest judge on the BBC One series MasterChef, and was also one of the judges on Channel 4's The Great Cookbook Challenge with Jamie Oliver. In 2021, he won Restaurant Writer of the Year at both the Fortnum and Mason Awards and also the Guild of Food Writers Awards. And as an interviewer, he's profiled Black African Londoners, including Idris Elba, John Boyega and Skepta. He says the thing he loves most about writing about food is food is wordless communication. It's a way to be creative, clever, or reference culture without speaking. I love being a conduit for that, trying to find the words so people can share the experience and almost taste the food. 
And when you read his work, this is nothing but the truth with the way he has with words and transporting you to the setting about which he's writing, despite being on the tube or sitting on your sofa. His book, Settlers, was released last year and is described as a journey into the extraordinary vibrant world of Black African London, which is shaping modern Britain and truly what makes a Londoner. Welcome, Jimmy. Thank you very much. Yeah, always uh, nice to get such a lovely intro <laughs> and, you know, a challenge to try and keep a straight face. And not. <laughs> and it's always, I, I, I don't know if this is true of a lot of writers, but like when people start quoting things you've written back to you, you're like, did I say that? Like, I think maybe because you like churn through such a volume of, of written words that you're like, oh, wow, that sounds quite good. I guess That's... also it must feel quite different hearing your words through someone yeah. else's voice, like yeah. very different to when you're writing it and it's yeah. in your own head. Yeah. So Jimmy, at the end of this episode, we're going to cast you off to a desert island. How does the thought of being alone on a desert island make you feel? Well, as the uh, parent of young children, uh, <laughs> sounds amazing, to be honest. I think I'm sure that I would obviously really miss my family mm. and miss all the people that I love. But, yeah, there'd, there'd probably be an initial wave of, like, oh, my God, I'm just going to, like, reacquaint myself with napping and mm. sitting silently. And, you know, um, obviously... Uh, uh, anything that I've been able to smuggle to the island as well. So, yeah, there's mixed emotions, let's say that. That quote in the introduction is one of the most beautiful things I've read about food. It's a wordless communication and a way to be creative, clever, or reference a culture without speaking. You say you see yourself as a conduit for enabling people to taste the food without actually eating it. You are, of course, a brilliant writer and a brilliant eater, but how about cooking? Are you a good cook? I love cooking and I would say that I'm a decent cook. I think what can maybe be misconstrued when you write about food for a living when you're a restaurant critic, there's a kind of like, oh, could you do any better that you are essentially this kind of backseat driver that's forever implying how you would have changed it or done it better. <laughs> I think when you're around the people that, that cook at that high level and under real pressure and the contestants on shows like MasterChef, you realise that that is like a special breed, that there's like a rigour and uh, a sort of a skill that most home cooks just do not have. And so I wouldn't put myself in the bracket of I could go on MasterChef. But I think actually I am obviously interested in food. I, I cook a lot. I'm interested in tasting something. When I'm writing about a restaurant and visiting a place and trying to recreate it at home, like there's a real connection between the two for me. And so I think I, I'm, I'm quite sort of messy, maybe. Mm. And quite there's, there's a bit of chaos in there and it's quite kind of free form and I'm not really sort of somebody that... That, that is uh, scared to go off-piste and defy a recipe, uh, if I think I know better, uh, shockingly. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, I would say I'm a pretty good cook, actually. I think, I think if you polled people in my life and around me, they, they would hopefully... They'd hopefully be quite kind. Well, it, funny you should say that, Jimmy, because actually I've got a poll here. Um, Imagine if you had. Yeah, and they were like, don't know what he's talking about. It's terrible. It's terrible. So I know your mother was a fantastic cook. So mm. let's dive straight into the first Desert Island dish. And that's the mm. dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Yeah, I, I, I'm always talking about my mum in relation to food. And I sometimes feel a bit like, oh, God, I need to like stop talking about my mum constantly. But there's no getting away from it. She's so central to my understanding and appreciation for food. She's a naturally 
gifted, like really innate cook. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the dish that really evokes my childhood, it's really humble and really simple and possibly slightly weird, but <laughs> it's, it's stew, like a, like a red uh, like tomato and pepper stew, which is almost like the mother sauce of like um, Nigerian cooking. It's blended uh, peppers, um, plum tomatoes, uh, scotch bonnet chilli in there as well, onion, and you just cook it like right down till it's kind of like sticky, jammy. It kind of almost gets like oily and separates in that way. And it's really rich stew. And sometimes you'll have like slow cooked beef in that sort of really falling apart. And so we'd, we'd normally have some stew like that in the house. And I think when we just wanted something quite quick to eat, we would have that with bread and with mm. there's a specific kind of Nigerian bread that I talk about in Settlers as well that's called um, a gege bread and it's quite sweet and soft and almost cake-like and it's it's a little bit like a Japanese uh, like mm. sort of... The milk loaf. Yeah, milk loaf, yeah, like shokupan um, and you'd get that fresh and it's something that I think especially in like black communities there's a lot of Caribbean bakeries, West African bakeries and there's a specific kind of repertoire of, of baked goods and so, you know, say something like after church we'd get like a fresh baked like loaf of that still warm and then we'd have thick slices of that like with stew on the side like so simple so humble just eating that with your hands dipping you know using the uh the kind of quite squidgy sweet bread to scoop up bits of this um really deep uh sticky rich spicy umami laden sauce and like scoop that into your mouth is uh yeah that that is just like taste of my childhood in so many ways jimmy you can tell you're a food writer <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i'm eating that right now and it's i can't help amazing. myself can i like it, it's funny there are, there are times like i was doing an interview recently and they read back like a a description of some dish that I'd written to me and I was a bit like oh my god wow like maybe just say tasty next time mate like I was a bit like I just can't help myself in something I read you said that you asked your mum recently about your childhood and she said that you didn't really love Nigerian food beyond fried rice or jollof rice and she couldn't cook certain things like stockfish in the house because you'd all complain about the smell and so it was only relatively recently that you all started appreciating African food. Do you remember how old you were when you really began to appreciate how great it was? Yeah, well, this is it. My shame <laughs> as, as a quite a fussy eater in some ways, really. And kind of, I think like a lot of immigrant kids probably have that thing of not appreciating the amazing kind of like culinary culture that was like right there in your kind of, you know, underneath your nose. Because I think... Uh, when you start to explore your immigrant heritage and you talk about it quite a lot and you almost become this kind of de facto spokesperson for it, you can sometimes skip over the fact that, yeah, a lot of people have quite a conflicted relationship with it and it's not something that you instantly love and these these tastes and these preferences like ebb and flow as we, as we get older, don't mm. they? And so, yeah, I'm trying to think when I first started... Like there, there were certain things that I always loved, like jollof rice, like that stew that I've, I've described. And I think it was just more that I kind of gravitated towards things that that were outside of what my mum would cook. I don't know, like I, I, it's weird, isn't it? Sometimes 
you can tell yourself, oh yeah, I'm not really interested in that. And I definitely grew up being like, oh, like awful and things like that. But I don't know. I think maybe writing about food more as well, like you just, you become more adventurous by mm. dint of being exposed to these things a little bit more. And so, yeah, I, it probably it probably has been a gradual thing, but it's certainly the last few years, especially where I've really sort of embraced and like grown to like love uh all aspects of, of that culture, especially the food. Mm. You touched on that briefly there. So it's the perfect mm. time to talk about the second desert island dish. Mm. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. Yeah, I really was obsessed with food shows and, and like a TV, TV chefs. And I, I would watch them like really obsessively, like things like The Naked Chef were obviously like really pivotal. But two of the things that I really remember cooking first were I made some onion rings at school. And they they were slightly disastrous, like the kind of the, the coating wasn't particularly like all over the onion rings. <laughs> they were slightly soggy, but I remember being quite proud of them because it was like, oh, wow, like onion rings are something you can make. And I remember kind of taking them home in a little kind of Tupperware thing as they were just getting less and less <laughs> desirable. But I remember feeling like a note of pride. And then one of the, one of the first times, and it's barely a recipe, but that I remember having the wherewithal to like see something and follow it was Jamie Oliver did this dish and it's hardly even a recipe, but it's a fry up in a, in a pan and you crack eggs into like the gaps and you do it all in one pan. And so the, the eggs kind of form it into this kind of frisbee type thing that you then kind of lever out onto a plate. And even though it wasn't really a recipe, I remember a bit of a light bulb moment in cooking that because it was because it introduced you to the significance of cooking times and it mm. was about putting things in in a certain order and, all oh, you put the sausages in first and you put, you know, the tomatoes in if you're going to add them and you put the mushrooms. And I think because there was something a little bit like, you know, it's like something you'd see in the Beano or like the, yeah, or the Dandy maybe. And I really remember that becoming part of my repertoire mm. and, and then being like a bridge to thinking about, to, to feeling a degree of oh, okay, I know the order to put things in and now I, I can sort of, oh, I can add some mushrooms to that. It was a route to kind of wanting to to try out more things as well. So, yeah, the, the onion rings and the frisbee fry-up. But I think a fry-up, it's not actually as simple as mm, it seems. It's yeah, a bit like yeah, yeah. the Sunday lunch where it is all about timing. Yeah, but if, you, yeah, yeah. if that's something that you learn early on yeah. and you master the timings, it can give you so much confidence. Yeah. Which, as yeah. we know, that's what learning to cook is all yeah. about. No, definitely. There was real confidence. Jimmy, you're probably most famous for being a restaurant writer, but you are also a journalist who writes mm. about a very broad range of topics. Mm. Was journalism what you always wanted to do growing up? Yeah, I, I definitely wanted to to write from like a really early age and I really loved uh, like writing stories and like showed like I think like a sort of aptitude for it uh, from quite an early age. But I just don't know if I really realised that, that journalism could be like, a, you know, a specific avenue for that. Mm. Like I... I think when you grow up in a world where you don't know anyone that's a journalist, like I didn't really put it together that there were there were people responsible for those words that you're seeing, yeah. you know, in in a newspaper or in a magazine at that time. Like it seemed like to be happening in this far off kind of mysterious world. And so I think from the moment that I kind of connected the dots and realised, oh, okay, there's these jobs and there's journalism and 
um, that is a that is a route to kind of storytelling in 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 many ways. And and that was probably around the time that I was at university. And then yeah, from then really, there's there's not really been any other career. And I and I don't I don't really know if there was ever like an alternative to be honest, which is kind of terrifying. I was very into um, I. I did uh, theatre and uh, I did an English and drama degree and so I was really into like performing in plays and stuff at school. We took one up to like the Edinburgh Festival like when we were oh, at wow. sixth form and so I was really, I was really quite into that. A lot of people around me were like, oh, you should like pursue acting. But I never knew if I really believed it as a, as a viable like, option. But that was probably the only other thing that I was like really into. And so it's, mm. so it's quite interesting now um, to have entered into the world of TV and broadcasting mm. as a writer, but then to feel yourself in those situations that I almost recognise as like performance situations yeah. and like being able to improvise and being comfortable in those scenarios. Like I do feel like it's it's quite strange that that was something that I, I was really into left and now it's kind of like almost come back around in yeah, a strange way. in a completely different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Having had the experiences that you've had, yeah. do you think that is an avenue that if you had another go at life, would you have wanted to pursue that? Um, yeah, may, maybe it was that kind of slight, you know, child of immigrants cliche where I was like... I'm never going to get acting uh, past my mum as a as a viable <laughs> career. So I need to like edge towards something more respectable. But I think, <laughs> but I think that is changing. You only need to look at mm. uh, um, the sort of varied generation of you know British actors that come from different backgrounds and different cultural have different cultural heritage and particularly like those from like the broad African diaspora to see that that's probably shifting and maybe there is part of me that yeah you know in another lifetime would have yeah. would have liked to but I don't know really the more I think about it the more I think I've got a pretty good gig in yeah. there <laughs> you know I I like in the space of this one sentence you've gone there I know I know you've, I know. you've yeah, had I was a like, good yeah. time as an actor and, and then now I, you've and I thought about it and I was like, I really thought about it. And I was like, oh, do you know what? Now I've got a pretty good gig, like, in terms of... Um, you even tried to blame it on your mum there, Jimmy. I did try to palm <laughs> it off on her. But, yeah, I'm sure she'd be, like, really up for it. She was, like, very encouraging. You've said that when you were starting out in journalism, most people were generalists and they didn't mm. pick a specialist topic. Yeah. And when you started, you lent more towards culture and the arts writing. But food was always in the mix and mm. it really came to the fore as you progressed. What was it about food writing that really drew you in? Mm. I started out on magazines and particularly lifestyle magazines. There was really this feeling that you had to be sort of expert at a number of things and like interested in a number of things. You'd be sort of given a story and you'd be like, yeah, here we go. But then I entered like a, uh, working for the Evening Standard and working for a newspaper and it's a lot more you have your beat you have your kind of specialism mm. and that's your patch and you kind of don't really deviate from that too much and so um, I've always I've always liked writing about other things as well as food even as food has come to the fore I always talk about this but when I wrote my first kind of guest column for the ES ma for ES magazine the um, Evening Standard's uh, uh, weekly supplement before becoming restaurant critic there, like I did like a guest column. And it just, I just had such a clear sense of how I wanted to approach it. I think I'd read a lot of restaurant reviews. I was a fan of them. It just seemed like this amazing uh, vehicle for all sorts of different, different kind of interesting 
like avenues regarding like changing cities and mm. food culture and uh you know different parts of town and kind of like it just seemed like and you know social observations and a way to be like funny but also be insightful and serious and so I kind of like the challenge of trying to kind of do justice to the broader context and the bigger picture and be an interested observer in that way and also give you an entertaining, hopefully quite funny, um, evocative sense of what it's actually like to sit at a table there, to eat their signature dish, to kind of have a cocktail in hand kind of thing. So it's always a challenge, but I feel like it's it's a strange thing that has that crystallizes so many of my interests and yeah. passions and puts them in this really um, hopefully quite appealing package. Yeah. No, it's mm. about so much more than just the food. Yeah. I think that's what yeah, you do I think so, so. Well. yeah, yeah. Like I guess it's one of those things that I've almost stumbled into, but it just feels absolutely right and uh yeah, just chimes with so many of my kind of long standing interests. That's often how you know you're mm. doing the right thing. And yeah, it just feels yeah. like everything's clicked yeah. into place. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Jimmy, we're on to the third desert mm. island dish. What's the best dish you've ever eaten? Oh wow, this is such a tough question. Um genuinely, because I think so much of this is like linked to context, isn't it? Like your specific moment of like need or like hunger or what just happened. Or I think of, um, and my wife probably won't thank me for this. Um, uh, after our uh, eldest had been born, um, it was one of those hospitals where the uh, they sort of kicked the the other partner out or like the dad out in this case. And you weren't allowed to sleep there. And I did not put up much of a fight because I was so <laughs> oh, tired. No. I was like, oh, no, what we can't, yeah. Oh, anyway, I'm gone. And I remember going to get a kebab. I remember going. <laughs> and it was, and it probably wasn't even that great a kebab. It was kind of delirious happiness and relief mm. and all of those things that you probably feel in the aftermath of um, like a child being born or like yeah. a big sort of scenario like that. And I remember just eating it in this exhausted state and then obviously going straight back to, you know, like as, as early as I could the next morning to help out. And uh, But, yeah, so, I mean, I, I was maybe going to go for something else, but I remember vividly that, that the joy that I felt while eating it was really related to like, yeah, it was relief really mm. that like, you know, everyone was going to be all right. My wife had had, you know, our, our first kid and just feeling that sense of like, oh my God, here we go. Yeah. yeah. That's such a vivid description and mm. it's that's such a strange time when everything has changed. Like you suddenly yeah. have a child, but they're still in the hospital yeah, yeah, yeah. and you're not yet into your normal life. Yeah. In late 2020, after almost 48 years in the role, Faye Mashler stepped down as the Evening Standard's chief restaurant critic and you took over. The position is seen as being one of the most influential on Londoners' dining habits. And as Mashler had been in the job for just shy of half a century, this was a very big deal. Did you feel intimidated? Yeah, it was a big deal. And it was um, pretty daunting, like Faye was and still is um, such a sort of titanic figure within the, the realm of like restaurant writing and food writing. It was particularly strange because when I worked at the evening stack, when I was in house on the paper, I 
would edit the food section and so I would kind of be tasked with the receiving phase copy and putting it on the page and putting a headline on it so I was kind of like a point person and so I was kind of on the other side of it and so it was really strange to to suddenly find myself in that role Um, and that was probably like quite crucially one of the times when I just got more of an appreciation for the rhythms of, of trends and openings like that was another little step jump in terms of like getting to know the world a little bit more. Taking over from Faye was it was very daunting, but it was really exciting. And it was something that I like really embraced. And Faye was um, so kind of kind about me taking over and so kind of like supportive. And, and I think I wrote at the time, it was her, her rigor and her um, curiosity and her talent, which again, I must point out, she's still demonstrating because she's still writing fantastic restaurant columns. Um, and it was that that I just really wanted to make sure like I emulated, but also that I did in my own way. And yeah, so I, the other thing that I would say, the flip side of, of that, that feeling of being somewhat daunted and respectful of what Faye had done and what I was kind of taken on board, I was really conscious perhaps not initially, but certainly, you know, as I continued in the role, that I just needed to do it as myself. You can't pretend to be a restaurant critic based on people that you've read before. Yeah, exactly. But I'm always thinking it needs to feel like me. It needs to be like my kind of response to it. It needs to sound like me. It needs to kind of be my kind of take on it. If, If there's a reference that's quite sort of arcane and like obscure, but I feel like it's justified because I always felt like the thing that I really loved about reading restaurant reviews or, or or criticism or writing of all kinds really was that there was such specificity to it but I have really enjoyed the challenge of kind of hopefully doing justice to it in my own way. Mm, that's so interesting to hear you talk about that and definitely some really good life lessons in mm, there. Yeah hopefully. <laughs> Let's talk about the fourth desert mm. island dish. What is your favorite sandwich? Now we're talking. Um, so I, I weirdly I don't know what's happened, but I don't eat that many sandwiches anymore. But I really love, uh, and this this is, uh, a lot of people have this in hotels and traveling and stuff, but a club sandwich. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Like, there's there's a particular, there's a particular thrill and pleasure to, like, an unbelievably good, like, room service club so sandwich. Good. So good. And, and I, and, and sort of as almost connected to that, I recently, and I did put it between bread recently, but sometimes I'll just have it as like a salad. But if you like roast a chicken and you've got like leftover kind of meat from like the carcass to sort of then get some really good mayonnaise, like some, like a lot of mustard and then uh, sort of make a kind of chicken mayo, like loads of pepper. And like, there's nothing better than like a really good, like homemade sort of chicken mayo. Mm. Um between some some good bread um i got quite into making flatbreads like kind of piadina style like ones for a while and i did one of those me and my wife actually were taking the kids to legoland and uh i don't know if any parents have ever been to legoland but oh my goodness um (laughs) gotta get that driving yeah yeah oh my god (laughs) yeah and uh we were we were ready for the fact that the food options there would not be that great and i had some leftover um flatbread dough and so i made uh flatbread with like you know some i think there was some like sort of dressed like little gem in there like really good uh chicken salad 
and uh, we had those like in the car on the way there and that mm. was absolute magic yeah, yeah so yeah club so sandwich good. but yeah the chicken salad part of it is, mm. is increasingly important yeah so good <laughs> i came across a quote where you said that restaurants are stories in themselves and i love that special moment of discovery when i've had a fantastic meal experienced something i'd never seen before i'm inspired by something completely unfamiliar the food disarms people in a really lovely way does that mean the way to your heart is through innovation and exciting things? Or can a restaurant wow you with the familiar or does Simple just not really cut it for you? Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I guess um, it's all relative in terms of like what will be familiar to you and what will be unfamiliar. I guess what I was kind of maybe driving at with that quote is I will inevitably end up on these real rabbit holes of types of restaurant or types of cuisine that are like, expressions of a particular culture or like a particular time like uh, i did one recently that was about these um i forget the the cantonese name of them now but they're essentially hong kong's version of the greasy spoon cafe mm. and they they kind of were popularized in the 1950s and they were kind of a way to to almost emulate what was being eaten by the british expat community um and but then they became and are increasingly really popular with um the cantonese community they do like borscht uh soup uh because there was like you know a russian community there and they do like you know milky teas and it's but it's kind of you know really uh beautifully brewed oolong and things like that and so it's this kind of weird genre mashing thing such a rich story and culture and like i love things like that and so i think the answer is is authenticity really mm. and i love places that really transport you and introduce you to something that whether it's new to you or not it feels really um detailed yeah. and textured and soulful those those are really the places that i kind of respond to we're on to the fifth desert island dish jimmy what's the dish you eat the most often oh this is a tricky one but I think I'm going to go for, um, and we mentioned it a little bit when we were talking about my childhood, um, jollof rice. Mm. probably eat it a lot. And part of that is because my kids, my mum's grandkids, absolutely love it. It's probably the one bit of like Nigerian cuisine that they will kind of really love. And because it's like, you know, got some nutrients in it that aren't like, you know, <laughs> frozen peas and, and like ketchup. And we probably are like, oh yeah, we'll get them some jollof. Um, and so I think just by dint of that, you know, my mum will keep us really well stocked with it. Oh. And she'll make it any hour. And I think because of that, and this is another kind of knock-on effect to the pandemic, I you know, forcibly after some lessons from my mum taught myself to cook it because, you know, that it was really uh, all the many sort of heartbreaking things about that period and really difficult things. I'm sure so many people had their own version of this was that in that isolation, you weren't able to have these dishes that, that you know, you can't cook or mm. that you don't know how to or that you can't make in the same way as yeah. as, a, as a friend or a relative. Which or was that. ironic because those are the dishes that comfort yeah, you the most. Completely, yeah, completely, yeah, completely, yeah. And so it was, it was really sort of pronounced. And so I think because of that, I've taught myself to make jollof. It is... It is all right it is always getting better so what is your mum's secret 
oh God, she makes it in such a specific way. I've had to do that thing of slightly defying her method. I've kind of fused like some of her methodology with like another recipe like that I kind of like use that's a little bit more kind of uh, idiot proof. As well. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, jollof rice is probably the thing that I have most frequently and that's both because I'm cooking it for the people that I love and also that my mum is still, you know, occasionally there'll be a knock at the door um, and I'll open the door and she won't even be there. Oh. There'll just be like a pile of like, you know, like some Tupperware like with rice in it. And she's already like scurried back to the car to unload, you know, the seven other dishes that she's like cooking and stuff. Like it's it's incredible. And yeah, at my book events, um, a, a big part of the appeal has been that my mum, as, as people are increasingly learning, will like cook like more than she absolutely needs to. And like she kind of, it started off as she'd just do like puff puff, which are these amazing kind of like drop donuts that we have in mm. Nigeria that you fry in oil and then you toss in like uh, sugar and they're so good. Oh my goodness. We need to get your mum her own restaurant. Yeah, I think like so. Yeah, I think the end game is the book just becomes a, a method for yeah. other people to just buy her food. Yeah, the the way that I sell books is is the, <laughs> through offering like a bowl of jollof and some puff puff on the side. Oh my God, that sounds like a very good scheme to me. So you have a podcast called Where's Home Really, which explores this question with a different guest each week and gets them to answer the question of where home is as told through people, words, places and food. And it's both fun, but also fascinating to hear how people approach the question. And it ties in with the themes of your brilliant book, Settlers, which came out last year. I wondered, has there been anything that surprised you in how people have chosen to answer the question? Yeah, it's it's been an amazing show to do. And as you say, such a kind of spiritual successor slash companion piece to like Settlers mm. in that Settlers was me exploring my own culture and heritage and how I was raised and how that is uh, affecting and moulding British society at large and British history, really, and black British history. And this kind of like opens it up to all sorts of people with different kind of cultural backgrounds. So, yes, yeah, similarly, you know, to this show, in some ways, we, we kind of ask people to come with certain elements and, you know, yeah, be that a person that really evokes home, a phrase that really evokes home, a, a, a dish or a plate of food um, and a place. Um, and it's really varied. And like, so, you know, a lot of people, it will be, oh, it's definitely my mum or it's this kind of like figure. So yeah. I think people like bring so much to it. Um, Andrew Wong, the uh, uh, two Michelin starred uh, chef um, of Chinese heritage, he spoke about his friend's front step as being his place. But one of the like, one of the things that's really come to the fore is the ways in which people create their own home yeah. from uh, and their own sense of it through different cultures kind of mm. coalescing. And I think this is really universal as well. And, and this is kind of the central driving question and interest of the show. You know, almost by accident, that has become one of the more interesting components of it, where people um, really dig into how they've created home for themselves. Yeah, it's so interesting. And it's it's conversations like that that help everyone to understand not only themselves, but mm. also more about other people in yeah. general. So yeah, really yeah, massively. Mm. Let's move on to the sixth Desert Island dish, and that's your go-to dinner party dish. Mm. 
yeah. One that springs to mind is something that like friends did for us once. I really remember it just being so great. Um, and it sounds quite humble and maybe sounds a bit sort of like weeknight, but a really good chili, maybe sort of, you, you know, you up the steaks and you kind of, you you could do it veg and then you could have, um, which I've definitely done before and like, you know, just gone big on some like really kind of nice beans and get some like ancho chilies in there and, you know, splash out on like proper like Mexican, like, you know, oregano and things like that and really go for it. A bit of cinnamon and really sort of cook it slowly and like imbue it with loads of flavour or, you know, upgrade it a little bit with some like brisket and like proper like slow cooked meat rather than the bog standard mint and then the real appeal and the real kind of thing that makes it fun for a dinner party i think is like bits on the sides and so like really fresh kind of like zingy salad and like you know grated cheese and make an amazing guacamole and have some you know baked potatoes and fresh chilies and i think fundamentally it is having those multiple elements it's kind of those are the best kind of dinner party dishes for me where there's a bit of everything and yeah. it's kind of got that kind of buffet feel, which is obviously labour intensive. But, um, yeah, there's something about a chilli that I just always really love it. Yeah, I always really so love doing good. it. If I turned up to someone's house for a dinner party and that was on the menu, <laughs> yeah. I'd be so happy. Yeah. Jimmy, on Desert Island Dishes, we've got a cookbook corner. Mm. What is your most treasured cookbook? Oh, wow. There are so many that that I cook from quite a lot. And, like, weirdly, there's one that I really, really love. And I think it's it's often the way that the cookbooks that you've used the most are, are often, like, slightly strange <laughs> ones that are, like, came free with, like, <laughs> yeah. some, like, appliance or I know, whatever. Why or, is yeah, that? yeah, it's really weird. The Magimix book from yeah. 1972 <laughs> yeah, yeah. is a real yeah. banger. So I'm I'm, I'm going to say two. So so one would be the Naked Chef, and my mum very sweetly like she wrote in the front of it like you know I th I think I got it like she got it for me like yeah the year it came out so what's that like two thousand and she's written like a lovely message and dated it because she's obsessed with doing that and you're a bit like why are you doing this but now it's such a kind of treasured um, moment and memory and that was kind of such a that was such a big sort of formative uh, book for me but then also and again it came from my mum there's this one and it's literally called like the best of British cookbook I wish I could shout out the author but it's really classic British recipes and I think having grown up with a mum that was a really talented cook and would cook a variety of dishes but there's a whole family of, of dishes things like cauliflower cheese and things that I've grown to love that just there isn't really there isn't really the crossover within like West African cuisine of those kind of creamy, um, stodgy, like, you know, those kind of really hearty British dishes. But I often find that I'm looking for how to make some classic dish or something like a toad in the hole or yeah. whatever. And, and it'll always be in there and the recipes will always be like quite useful. And I kind of like the old fashionedness of it. And it is probably that and, 
the naked chef are the most kind of like spattered. Yeah, and, the sign know, of a very well-loved book. Big time, yeah, 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 definitely. Jimmy, we're on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? Yeah, so I'd probably have a couple of courses at least. I'd have three courses, let's say. I'd start with, and it's a variation of that stew and... Uh, uh, a gege bread mm. uh, dish that I mentioned earlier, but it would be the stew with uh, yam, um, which uh, we would eat a lot on Sundays again. And that is kind of, you know, um, those kind of really gnarled, uh, thick, like thick skinned tubers that you see, but they've got this amazing, if you like peel them and just steam them quite simply and maybe like have a bit of butter with them or to be really authentic to my 90s childhood, it'd be like margarine, to be honest. Um, and you have that, you just steam them quite simply, a bit of salt, bit of, weirdly a bit of sugar as well, and um, have that with the stew. So I'd start off with a bit of that, and then I would have an amazing uh, cheeseburger. I shouted out the, the burger from the Plimpsoul, which is a pub in... Uh, Finsbury Park in North London um, that I kind of reviewed in its early incarnation, a uh, chef duo called Four Legs. So I love that burger, but I'm also, I'm going to shout out an In-N-Out burger because they're such a rarity, aren't they? They're like only ever on the, it almost goes back to that, um, that club sandwich thing where it's like, you know, if you're ever in the West Coast of America, like I vividly remember actually getting my cab driver on the way to get a flight from, uh, I've been out to Las Vegas, um, on the set of The Hangover Part 3, weirdly. And I remember getting my cab driver, like, tentatively being like, we stop it in and out on the way? And he was like, absolutely. Like, you know, he kind of got that it was, like, a very important thing. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd have an in and out burger. And then uh, to finish, uh, what would I have? I... Um, this could change literally every day, but I'm going to go for a nice creme caramel Ooh. because I feel like that will just kind of like set me off. And again, uh, the, the the starter is very personal. The, the middle dish, I love a burger. I've always loved a burger and it feels like it has like a scarcity. And the creme caramel is one of those things that I just don't eat that often. It will give me happy memories of my former privileged life of, of you know, eating amazing restaurant food yeah. uh, before <laughs> um, sitting on my desert island. Oh, Jimmy, those are your desert island dishes. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much. <laughs> I really appreciate it. So there we have it. Another delicious day of desert island dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and also I think wherever you're listening, really. It does make a difference because it boosts the show and it helps other people to find it, which is great because it means I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, then do come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes and you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. Thank you again to our season sponsor, Lloyds Bank, and I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.